that's a little too thirsty, I think. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we violate Megacity One's judicial codes, one issue at a time. Coming at you live from the hot box of my closet, I have not showered in 24 hours, and I smell fantastic. I'm Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the Princess of Pain, Jessica Frazier. Yar! How are you smelling? God, I'm in a hot box of pain at the very least. I had to go to work like physically into the office today. So I actually, you know, had to be decent enough to be around people that are masks. So the deodorant had to at least be applied. But no, hard pass. (laughs) (laughs) I work out of my bedroom now. You're lucky if you get pants. Well, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to explain why we are here? You know, we're here because we love comics, Mike. True. We love comics. We want to talk about all the comics. We want to do deep dives about our favorite comics and their heroes and where they came from and wild little stories that we find out about them and bringing in nefarious characters like Eric Estrada. He's not nefarious. (laughs) He's a little nefarious. He was involved in a really weird kind of scammy land sale thing. He did also endorse Trump on Twitter. Remember that? Where he was oh, like, you God, should... he is nefarious. He Gosh did. Darn. I, why do I always <laughs> want to give Eric Estrada so much credit? I'm like way too nice to the guy. I don't even know him. I do follow yeah. him on Twitter now. But no, he literally told Donald Trump on Twitter that he should run for president because he tells it like it is. So thanks, no. Eric. Thanks. No. Appreciate that. That was a bad idea like for the record i don't know if anyone else knows that <laughs> everyone else knows that every they other country now. knows that oh man we're gonna get into some hot topics today too this is already a good start yeah <laughs> so before i interrupted you is there anything else that we like to cover or talk about or look at oh their video games all the related media movies everything everything comics related we want to talk about it fair yeah well today we are going to hop on our lawmasters and cruise the cursed earth as we check out both the cinematic adaptations of judge dread but before we do that before we dive into this episode we'd like to acknowledge a small milestone because this is our 10th episode and we've received over 500 downloads so You know, that may not sound like anything major compared to a lot of podcasts out there but we're incredibly proud of what we've able to achieve and how far we've gotten so far and if you're listening to us we're super grateful that you've just given us your time we really appreciate it so to celebrate we're going to do a giveaway if you go to our page on apple podcast and leave a rating and then email us a screenshot of said rating and a review but that's only if you're inclined really we just care about the rating we'll enter you to win a 25 dollars gift card from nucadia nucadia actually offers international shipping too so even Listeners outside of the continental U.S. are eligible. That's super exciting. Yeah. So yeah, rate us, review us. We appreciate you all. Even you. Yes, I'm talking to you (laughs) right through your car stereo right now. We're there with you, driving along. (laughs) Hey, watch the road. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're at the point of the episode where we like to start off with one cool thing that we've read or watched lately. You want to start off? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I needed a little bit of a palate cleanser after watching 
the 2012 Dread film. <laughs> so much gore. Yeah. So I ended up watching Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I hadn't seen before. And it was super fun. Loved the music as always. Characters had a, a really good chance to further develop. Okay, but I have to say, dude, I like Stallone'd myself. I did not know he was in that movie. And then yeah. he just shows up and I was like, what the fuck? Because I literally had just watched them both in a row. Oh, that's and really And so funny. I literally had just seen Stallone like the movie before that. And then he that's shows great. up again and I was like, good Lord. Well, and you know that his crew is like the original Guardians of the Galaxy from the comic books. So, I do. Yeah, I do now. I know yeah. I looked that up afterwards and I was like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. And it was like Michael Rosenbaum, uh, who did the voice of Superman and was Lex Luthor in Smallville, and then Michelle Yeoh and Ving Rames. I was totally here for that cameo. That was great. Yeah. It was su- once I looked that up, I was like, oh, that makes more sense because I wasn't aware of that. But yeah. Yeah. It was super fun. But then I still loaned myself again because I, I did a, a guest hosting of trivia for North Bay Trivia in uh, Santa Rosa, Shady Oak Barrel. And they have like a little arcade game that's Stallone on the front. And I can't remember. I sent it to you, I think, because I freaking Stallone oh. myself again. Secondary I, Stallone. I feel like you <laughs> did. And I can't remember what it was. I'd have to look it up, but I'm too lazy to look through my phone. Yeah, so that's fair. we'll just leave it. if anyone knows i don't i don't care anymore (laughs) fair so back to guardians of the galaxy after that stallone detour (laughs) i really really liked the evolution of gamora and nebula's relationship i loved that i thought it was fantastic like i thought honestly almost all the characters had really nice development except really i mean I don't know. I feel like Peter didn't actually develop that much as an actual character. No, he was just taking on some Shyamalan twists and turns. Yeah. But yeah, the whole bit where Yondu is yelling at Rocket about, you say that I don't know you, but like, you're me. And it was, oh, oh. Oh my gosh. I definitely cried during that movie. I'm not going to lie. But I'm a There's crier. a lot of feels. There's a lot of feels in that movie. Yeah. Oh, it was so good. So overall, yeah. two thumbs up. Yeah. What about you? What have you been reading, watching? Yeah, so Sarah and I started watching Loki because that just began airing last week. Mm-hmm. And ahead of that, I wound up reading a couple of old issues of Thor, specifically Thor 371 and 372, which are the issues that actually introduced the Time Variance Authority. And the funny thing is that these issues also introduced a character who may look a little familiar to you, especially as we've been prepping a bit for this particular episode. So check out the cover and tell me if he reminds you of anyone. (laughs) Okay, that looks like a... That's so funny. That looks like Captain America. But it also looks like one of those those Doctor Who, like... What are those things called? I don't... The Daleks? Yeah. if you take a closer look at that guy, that is... So his character's name is Justice Peace. And if you look at the Good shape Lord. of his helmet, and he's actually on a sky cycle, it's oh, meant to be, shit. yeah, it's a pastiche yeah. of Judge Dredd. He does look like Judge Dredd. You know what threw me was the bright colors, because Judge Dredd yeah, has darker it's a different... tone, so I kind of got drawn more to that kind of vibe. But you're right, he's got the helmet across his face. You can see one of his eyes, and the other one looks like it's probably bionic. Yeah. And it's kind of like a samurai helmet, it looks like. It's, I think it's supposed to be shaped like more of a samurai style. 
I'm not mistaken. Kind of, which big. Like actually, the I don't. The old school Judge Dread helmets actually like some of them have actually taken on that look too. Like they've kind of played with the shapes. But anyway, I thought it was just kind of a funny, a funny uh, full circle moment. He's got some arm bandoliers too. Yeah, man, those were big in the eighties. I guess so. (laughs) Dang, dude, I'm loving this though. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We are going to be talking about Judge Dredd in general. We're not going to do a deep dive on the comics, but we're going to talk a bit about the background. And so before we actually do that, I felt like we should take a minute and talk about how both of us have grown up with pretty close connections to law enforcement. Do you want to go first? Yo, sure, 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 sure. So my dad was a police officer for, I think, close to 30 years. And for a lot of it, he worked in public safety, which is really like policing and firefighting. And they rotate duties. So you have to know both. You go through both academies. It's supposed to be that you're a little bit more well-rounded and involved. And I don't know. It was at the time, the community was a lot smaller and it probably made more sense, but it's getting bigger. And I don't I don't know how much sense it makes, but I'm also not an expert. And I haven't lived there for a while. So I don't know what the politics there are these days surrounding that as much as I used to. As far as police officers go, I do know a a few really decent people who are police officers. And, you know, growing up, I had mostly good experiences. However, that hasn't been the case for everyone. And my privilege of being raised white and a child of a law enforcement officer has absolutely shielded me from so many of the issues in policing that plagues our country. Yeah. And I have to say, like, unironically, my dad was a decent cop. He's still alive. But when he was still in law enforcement, he was a decent cop. And he definitely let his ethics guide him. And he left positions based on his moral compass. And I'm I'm really proud of him for leaving organizations that were more on the corrupt side Mm -hmm. or that weren't doing things that he thought they should be doing and, and abiding by their own rules. However, he's also the one who taught me about profiling which is a conversation I remember having with him around nine or 10 years old, maybe earlier than that. Mm -hmm. And that's just such a racist tactic that has never really sat right with me and that I adamantly oppose now that I'm older and I have a better understanding of how we as a society villainize people of color just for existing. Mm -hmm. So without getting too far into what is a really, really massive conversation and discussion, the judicial system in this country is absolutely broken. And we statistically arrest, convict, and give longer incarceration timeframes to people of color. Which Yeah. I mean, there's that's just a fact. It's a fact. There there are numbers. You can look it up. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. So I know. On that fun note, what about <laughs> I'm such a downer. It's okay. I should have known better than to, to start us off on this you know, really positive note for the episode. <laughs> I already got fired up. I'm already going to have to edit out my mumbling. <laughs> it's all right. You know, it's funny because I have to wonder if my uncle actually knew your dad because my uncle was in the same area and worked in public safety as well. So he always did the, the firefighting and, and police work as well. My uncle is the guy that I grew up idolizing when I was a kid. He, he was the cool uncle to me. He taught me the basics of photography, and I worked as a freelance photographer for a while. He was a forensic specialist dealing with fingerprinting. So 
you and I grew up in the 90s in the Bay Area. So polyclass is a name that yeah. any, anyone who was here during that time knows. And she was a girl who was kidnapped out of her home, basically just taken while she was having a sleepover with some friends out of her home in Petaluma. And the FBI apparently came in and did a palm print, but they used some fluorescent powder that the local PD couldn't read. But my uncle had the training and I guess the equipment. I don't quite know all the details, but so he worked the polyglass case. He and my aunt are both retired police, and they were both so incredibly cool to me when I was growing up. And I have since had to reckon with the fact that, you know, not all cops are good. And I'd hope that they were great. I hope that they were the bar that other cops were measured against. But who can say at this point? Yeah. So we we both have connections to law enforcement, and I think it's safe to say that we're approaching Judge Dredd from a perspective that is influenced both by our backgrounds as well as the current environment that's going on. Because we're recording this in June of 2021, when things are still real bad in a lot of ways. Yeah. So now that we've got that highlight out of the way, I'm curious, what was your awareness of Judge Dredd prior to this episode? You know, besides name recognition, I didn't know much about the plotline other than some vague notion that it was futuristic or post-apocalyptic. So I came into this super fresh. Okay. And I'm super excited to learn more now. Yeah. So I definitely have a lot more familiarity with the character. I read some of his stuff in the 90s and 2000s. I would just kind of randomly find things and I thought he was pretty cool. When I was in roller derby, my roller derby name actually wound up being Judge Dreadful. <laughs> and so I've since then bought a number of collections. I've read most of the big storylines that they did from the 70s up until the mid-90s. And then I also read one of the more recent American series as well. I've seen all the movies. Dread is still one of my favorite movies of all time, even though we'll talk about that later on. It's got its own issues through today's lens. I guess I, the best way I can describe myself is I'm more than a casual fan, but I'm not a diehard fan. Part of it is just because there's so much lore at this point. So I have an unfair advantage in terms of familiarity, I guess. Sorry. No, that's okay. That's why you're hosting this episode, not <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to do some basic backgrounds. Dread was originally created in 1977 for this newly launched comics anthology called 2000 AD. There was this guy, he was an editor named Pat Mills, and he brought on a writer that he'd worked with named John Wagner to create new content for this magazine. And basically, comics anthology magazines, they were printed on like newspaper stock. They were magazine format and what it was very kind of, you know, old school pulp magazine like where it was serial stories usually or a little one off. So it'd be four to five pages usually of content per story. And then a lot of times they would end on a cliffhanger so that, you know, the readers would come back the next week. That's generally how British comics have worked. At least that's my understanding of it. That's how a lot of them are. And and actually, when they were trying to do U.S.-style-sized comics, supposedly they didn't do as well because they would get covered up, basically, and overshadowed by the sheer size of these magazines, which were much bigger and flashier. So Wagner came into 2000 AD. He'd had a lot of success writing this Dirty Harry kind of character called One-Eyed Jack for another anthology series called Valiant. And both he and Mills realized 
that 2000 AD needed a quote-unquote a hardcore cop character as part of the magazine's content. So Wagner has since then described Dredd as a psycho cop with no feelings. And then he worked with this artist named Carlos Esquera to create the character. And then Esquera wound up designing a character who reflected that kind of hardcore, no-feelings ideal. He actually died a couple of years ago, and The Guardian ran a really, it was a really nice tribute talking about his accomplishments and his style, but there's this really great quote, which I think you should actually read out, and it gives us a lot of background in a nutshell of Dredd and who he is. Sure. As Scarra started his career drawing war comics in Barcelona before moving to the UK and working for the anthology 2000 AD and others. He brought the iconography of fascist Spain to Dredd's extremely weird and vivid design and combined it with his experiences of living in Croydon through the 70s and 80s. The punk movement on his doorstep and TV images of policemen charging, striking minors. The eagle motif and helmet were drawn from fascism. The permanently drawn truncheon from police on the picket line. The zips, chains, and knee pads from punk. I was living in Franco's Spain, he told an interviewer last year, but also I was living in Mrs. Thatcher's England. I think that kind of tells us all we need to know about what they were going for with the vibe of Judge Dredd. Yeah, no, that that definitely showed. I was thinking that about the eagle. Yeah. When they were showing the big building and it was super, everything was just cement and. Yeah. It's got that brutalist kind of architecture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Dread exists in this world that's left standing after World War III and most of the planet's just been devastated. America is largely uninhabitable, save for a couple of what are called megacities, which are these autonomous city states that house hundreds of millions of people. At one point in the comics, I think it's up to 800 million, and they've had different events where they've kind of knocked it down repeatedly, and at one point it got as low as like 120 million or so, I think. That was kind of after I stopped reading, though. But anyway, Mega City 1 was originally going to be a future version of New York City, but that was quickly retconned to that specific part being some sort of capital area for this urban sprawl that covers most of the eastern seaboard. And from the get-go, Dread stories were kind of this extreme form of satire. It was presenting the society where democracy basically failed. And the office of the president of the United States has been retired, and society now runs under this, to be honest, terrifying gaze of the judges. How would you sum up the judges based on what we saw in the movies? As a whole, they were pretty robotic and unfeeling. They were doling out the letter of the law as it happened and per their protocol. And their justice is swift and immediate, which is really terrifying, like you said, to imagine. Mm-hmm. And what's even scarier is that all crimes were treated the same. You are either sent to a prison called an isopod or killed right then and there. There, was, there were no middle grounds between those points. It was like you're hauled off then, you serve a sentence, or you're just killed. Yeah. I mean, that's really not that different from the comics. And then as far as their appearance, as with most uniforms, they dress the same with helmets and body armor, and they are just armed to the gills, and they look just as scary as they act. Yeah, and 
I think a safe way to describe the system of Mega City One is to call it authoritarian, but it's just a little bit different than what we normally associate with that term. Yeah, I wonder if there's some sort of like a lawitarian, like yeah. judiciarian. I don't know. Somebody's <laughs> gonna at me and tell me how stupid I am, but that's fine. <laughs> I already know. <laughs> I like I like I like judicialarian. I think that's a <laughs> if that's not a word, we should make it one. Here um, we are, TMTM. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to sit back and let the royalties roll in after this. Yeah, but in spite of all this, there's this very weird, dry British humor that kind of makes the whole narrative a little more palatable. So, like, one of the early stories is focusing on how robots were doing most of society's work, and that's resulted in rampant unemployment and boredom. So citizens of the mega blocks start engaging in what they call block wars, where neighboring blocks basically just start opening fire on each other because they want something to do. There's another story where the dark judges who are, they're effectively movie monster versions of the judges as we know them cross over into dreads reality. And then they start slaughtering people indiscriminately because all crime is committed by the living. And thus the sentence for life is death. Yikes. (laughs) Or there's also the idea that recycled food is what they call it, is how they eat these days. But recycled food is actually made from people. You know, it's Soylent Green, oh, basically. Soylent Green, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Dread comics always have this kind of underlying tone of absurdity. It's that slight bit of levity that makes this really brutal comic actually pretty enjoyable because it becomes ridiculous. It's a comic of extremes. Over time, the comic's gone on to deal with things like Dredd having to resolve how the system that he represents is actually problematic and it needs some kind of reform, the ramifications of how the push to move back to democracy fails, and, you know, actually fleshing him out as a character who occasionally has feelings. Not all the time, but just sometimes. He goes from being kind of a lawful neutral character to a lawful kind of good alignment. Like, sort of good, kind of, some of the time. There's only so long that you can have a a character be a robot for justice, if nothing else, before, you know, people are going to sour on him. You mean Um, a veritable killing machine? Yeah. The other thing is that the core Dread stories haven't really been reset. They're still going from 2000 AD. So at this point, we have nearly 50 years of stories that are all canon. And the other thing is that they keep on aging dread in real time. So at this point, he's absurdly old and they hand wave it away by spending time in the rejuva pods or whatever they are. But as a result, he's the same guy who has seen everything that has gone on in the comics. And as a result, he's matured and changed a bit. And it's kind of neat. So in the UK, dread's a pretty big deal. But his presence in America isn't quite the same like uk comic magazines back then were very different from comics here in the states so when they decided to bring him over here across the pond 2000 ad wound up working with this guy named nick landau who a couple of years earlier had created titan books to publish comic collections of judge dread in the uk and then was publishing more collections of other things landau had just created eagle comics to collect and publish dread stories and other 2000 ad stuff uh, here in the States in 1983. The Eagle series lasted for about three-ish years, and then it moved on to another publisher. And this is pretty much how Dread existed in the States 
in the 80s and 90s. A publisher would pick up the rights and then try to make them click with American readers, and then the series would get canceled, and then someone else would pick them up and try to do it again. And arguably his most, you know, quote-unquote mainstream moment was when DC Comics published an 18-issue series from 94 to 96. I've only gotten through a couple of these issues, and they don't quite bite like the originals. They feel more like an action sci-fi series with some weird kind of sarcastic humor, but it doesn't quite translate the same way. It feels like a knockoff product, to be honest. Mm. I mean, honestly, the best American adaptation I've seen is from the 2012 series that IDW did, and that condensed several of the iconic Dread storylines from the original British run, so they were a little bit more palatable for American audiences. But basically, American awareness of the characters generally stayed at that level of, oh yeah, that sounds kind of familiar, and then he's never really been a household name, which was what the 1995 movie was trying to change. Yeah. Well, it didn't change it for me, but <laughs> I was also, you know, I was also nine in 1995, so. I was 14. You're only a few years old. You say that like you're 90 now. <laughs> I know. By the way, Man. everyone, for the record, Mike is 90. I am. Since he's making a huge deal out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting on my rascal scooter. Just gonna, <laughs> just gonna drive through downtown Petaluma with my dogs in my sidecar. We're all gonna be wearing goggles and flight helmets, and you'll see me go by and just go rascal. My dude, you can do that now. <laughs> Sarah has told me I can't do that yet. <laughs> We've had this discussion. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. <laughs> Now that we've got the background out of the way, why don't we actually talk about what we're here to talk about, which is the 1995 Judge Dredd movie. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. You remember those TV schedules that used to be in the back of the newspaper? They would show you, like, A, what was on the air that night, and B, provide one-sentence summaries of what the movies were. Do you remember those? I do, because I loved reading those. <laughs> I know, I did too. How would you summarize... Stallone's Judge Dredd, if you were writing it up in that format. Oh, <clears throat> need a throat clear for that. <laughs> in a world where chaos reigns, one man stands between justice and lawlessness. But what happens when the judge becomes the judged? Find out this Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 9 p.m. Eastern on Spike TV. I just assumed Spike, Spike TV would play that. Spike TV would be all over this. Are you kidding me? Yeah. No, exactly. That was the first television channel that I thought of that was like, yeah, they would absolutely have this on. Like, they'd have a Dread Marathon. God, what an absolute time capsule of a TV channel. is. Spike TV isn't around still, is it? I don't know. Oh, I have no idea. I was, my, my 90s brain just woke up and was like, this is what you say. God. <laughs> I remember that was such a mid to late aughts tv channel it, it was basically toxic masculinity the tv channel yeah it was it was either <laughs> super masculine movies like this or it was just a game show about people falling all over each other and just laughing at people oh yeah was, was it uh most extreme challenge most or extreme whatever? elimination challenge yep. yeah yeah <laughs> As I sit here and I know exactly what it, because I didn't watch a million episodes of that. No, I'm, 
That was the only reason that I would turn that fucking channel on. Yeah, it's true. My brother and I would roll. No, so, okay, I just looked it up, and we don't need to actually record this, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Paramount Network, formerly Spike, which is still used for the Dutch and Australian feed, is an American... Be- ah! you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever. The oh, Australians well. don't even listen to us. I'm leaving all of this in, and the Australians don't listen to us yet. Oh, God, they're going to listen to us now, and they're going to be like, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> I can't... I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going to try to do some, like incredibly offensive australian accent no no don't do it no no i know better (laughs) okay let's go for an actual movie summary now what do you got sure sudden oh sorry Mm -hmm. regular voice jessica (laughs) set in a dystopian future complete with a densely populated metropolis and flying cars order is dictated and carried out by people called judges whose job is to convict, judge, and punish those moving outside of the law. The punishments are severe, being jailed or even killed for their transgressions. Stallone, who plays Judge Joseph Dredd, is seemingly one of the most feared and respected judges, until he is framed by a maniacal and presumed to be dead ex-judge Rico. Dredd has to prove his innocence in order to continue providing his particular brand of justice. Oh, and how can I forget about Rob Schneider, whose main role in this film was to say Dredd's name really loudly so they would get caught when they were trying to be covert. I mean, at least that's how it felt. (laughs) Yeah. Whenever I talk about this movie, I always sit there and reference how Rob Schneider is the worst choice to provide. You know, it's not even comic relief. It's like air quotes, comic relief. Schneider was really big at that time. Like he had just come out of SNL and I never found him really to be all that funny, but this was like at the start of his whole nineties. I don't know. What, what would you call that movement? God, it was like the stupid humor movement. Yeah. It was that Adam Sandler. I talk like, like I'm a baby. Adam Sandler. I can deal with to a certain extent. There are some movies I'm just like, whatever. Yeah. But I've liked him in some things even, but. I feel like Will Ferrell is a result of Adam Sandler. I feel like Adam Sandler birthed Will Ferrell, and I'm not happy about it. I do not like Will Ferrell. Man, I... At me, Will Ferrell. I do not like you. (laughs) (laughs) Just watch. He's going to, like, angrily tweet, and then we're going to get a bunch of, you know, I guess, angry Gen Xers. Press? all, all, All up in our DMs. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that bad press wasn't just good <laughs> press also, because yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this was before Schneider was given starring roles in movies like Deuce Bigelow, which I have yet to see a Rob Schneider movie that I don't find absolutely abhorrent for a number of reasons. Yeah, yeah. especially in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, he's not offensive in this movie. He's just not very funny and kind of useless, even though he's supposed to be the plucky comic sidekick, which, I mean, this was part of that era of buddy action cop movies, except just in a different setting. Yeah, I don't know. It was just very grating, the humor. Yeah. Enforced. I don't know. Yeah. So your summary is spot on. There's also detours into the Cursed Earth where Dredd is wrongfully convicted. And then this is something where they diverge from the the comic lore, but they're traveling to the penal colony in in Aspen when actually the penal colonies are all off world. 
So it's mm. you basically get sent there for hard labor off planet, and it's not exactly described what. And then he has to come back from the cursed Earth after dealing with the cannibalistic angel gang. And then there's the reveal that he's a clone, which at this point in time is not really a big deal. Like everybody knows it in the lore. And yeah, we get a, a climactic battle at the Statue of Liberty. Also, Joan Chen shows up for no real reason other than to be a woman for Diane Lane to fight. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's not a great movie. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but there are parts of it that I still really enjoy. Sarah and I wound up watching it together, and all of the practical special effects that they did are still so good, and they look so good. Oh, yeah. And and honestly, the action scenes are pretty decent for you know a mid-90s movie. Even where there's that bit with the flying motorcycles where they're being chased and they knock off one of the, the judges chasing them, that bit where he's falling into the, the bottomless abyss of Mega City looked really good. And I couldn't help but think of Ninja Turtles 3, where on the other hand, the bad guy getting knocked off into the ocean looks like <laughs> garbage. <laughs> yeah, no, that I was really impressed by that, especially considering the time frame it was in. Yeah. So this movie really tried to smash together a lot of those classic dread moments from the comic book. And it was trying to basically create something new while giving fans a lot of nods that they would appreciate. The funny thing is that it was really focusing on the story of Rico Dredd after he comes back from serving his prison time. But in the comic, he only shows up for a one-shot serial story, if I remember right where he comes back from serving prison time in a colony on Saturn's moon of Titan. So if I remember this right, he's just this kind of one-off character who shows up pretty early in the Dread stories. Like, I, I don't think the Dread stories had even been published for a year by that point. It's like the 30th issue or so. And then he's shot down by Dread in a duel. And the whole, the logic behind it is that he tries to get the drop on Dread, but his reactions are slower because he's been operating in lower gravity for a while. Interesting. But he's still supposed to be a clone, right? Yeah, he's he it's originally noted that he's Dread's brother, and then there's the whole clone thing that, that shows up later on and, and all that. Okay. But he also looks way different from Armand Asante in the movie. I'm sending you an image. You can take a quick look and see what Rico Dread looks like after his prison time in the comic. Oh. You would not get those too confused. Yeah. It's so um So this guy's got this guy's like a metal face now. He's got a nice little headband with yeah. probably a laser coming out the top. And then he's got like no nose any longer. He's just got metal over his nose. There's metal stuff going into his mouth and like half of his face just doesn't have skin anymore. And you can tell one of his eyes is blind. It's pretty wild. Sarah's yeah, crazy. he's not having a good hair day. It's a look. It's a look. Yeah. So the whole idea is that when you get shipped off to these colonies, you are basically surgically modified to survive in the environment. Ugh. Yeah. So definitely not what we got in the movie. No, you had a guy that actually looked a lot like Stallone. They did a pretty good job of that if they were going for lookalikes. Yeah, they were both very fit dudes who had those very strong chin lines. And then they also gave them cosmetic <laughs> contact lenses so that they would actually have blue eyes, which is why... That's what I thought. Yeah, when you look at Stallone, you're like, mm, pretty sure God didn't make those eyes that color. 
<laughs> yeah. It's not so bad from certain angles, but other ones you're like, it looks, wow, Piercer, what's up? Yeah, it looks very weird when you're, especially when you're watching it in high def these days. It, it looks unnatural. I'm not sure how it would look on a TV or in a movie theater in 1995. I'm a little curious because I didn't get to see it. I was too young to go see an R-rated movie back then. Womp womp. But yeah, so likewise, the character of Hershey, who is Diane Lane's character, she first appeared in a 1980 story called The Judge Child, which is this, it's this cool thing where it starts off as a road trip across the cursed earth and the angel gang who we see in the movie shows up and then it becomes this weird space opera as Dredd winds up chasing after the angel gang and the kidnapped Judge Child across multiple star systems which again talking about the weird absurdity of judge dread so <laughs> it's weird to see her in this movie because i always associate diane lane with under the tuscan sun i mean i've never even seen that movie but that's just always what i think of when i see oh, her same i definitely see her in italian villa and i have not seen that either <laughs> yeah although she did play superman's mom in the dceu so oh yeah there was that yeah. Her finest role, you know, when she gets sad about Superman with Lois Lane and then turns out to be a Martian green dude. <laughs> God, we're going to have so many movie stars not happy with us. I know. Uh. Eh, it's fine. <laughs> They'll just be crying in all of their money. It's fine. <laughs> oh, no. Two lame nerds on the Internet were mean to me. <laughs> I just uh, I... my nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> they made vaguely negative remarks about me. Uh, all right. <laughs> oh, let me use this fifty to dry my tears. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So Diane Lane shows up in Judge Dredd, and she's like way more of a damsel in distress, and then weirdly a romantic interest for Dredd than anything else. And that was really bizarre to see because with the hindsight of the comics that character in dread a hershey is like a badass cop she is a hardcore street judge but she and dread actually have often had kind of an antagonistic relationship based on differing perspectives about how the justice system should operate and oh, then interesting yeah and eventually she goes on to be the chief judge Oh, good for her. Yeah. You know, she busts through that glass ceiling. Man, it just took, you know, going through a third world war. Ladies, this is what we have to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> just wait for the flying motorcycles. We'll be there. <laughs> well, you know, you don't have to cook because we're just recycling people at that point. So, you know, it frees oh, up a lot of time. Perfect. You don't have to <laughs> don't have to stand in the kitchen and make all of us men folk roasts all day. Oh, perfect. Well, dang. What will I do? <laughs> Overthrow the patriarchy, I guess. Ugh, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then additionally, you know, Dredd himself was pretty different from what we had in the comics. The movie violated this key component of the character by spending a lot of time focused on Dredd out of uniform, which means that we got to see his face. And it's such a known thing that this is not something that Dredd does, that it's actually one of the first points in Dredd's Wikipedia article, if you would be so kind. Sure. Dredd's entire face is never shown in the strip. 
This began as an unofficial guideline, but soon became a rule. As John Wagner explained, it sums up the facelessness of justice. Justice has no soul. So it isn't necessary for readers to see Dredd's face. And I don't want you to. Which, I mean, I think that's actually a really cool defining aspect of the character. And it's always scarier if you can't see what you're fighting. Yeah, agreed. I mean, that's basic horror film rule. You know, it's always scarier if you can't see what's chasing you. Yeah. I kind of equate it to the recent Alien movie that they did, Alien Isolation, where they explain the origin for the alien species. And I was sitting there and going, there is nothing that you could tell me that would be worse than what I come up with in my mind when you've got a really nebulous origin. Exactly. And then I watched the movie and I was like, that's dumb. I'm, I'm going back to my original design. I like that better. Yeah. It's like Signs was really scary until they brought that stupid alien life being in. And I was like, well, there it goes. <laughs> yeah. Curse you, Shyamalan. <laughs> Judge Dredd is one of those movies where when you watch it, it feels like the people that were involved with making it really had a lot of fun and were really passionate about what they were doing. Like, I've got the making of book and you can actually see the set that they built basically on a patch of farmland that became the street for Mega City One. And it's crazy. It wound up having hundreds of neon signs after they built it. It looked like a living, breathing street from this strange city in the future. It was really cool. And likewise, there's that ABC warrior robot that we get to see a couple of times who looks absolutely incredible. And the costume designs are really cool. They don't quite work because, you know, it's spandex. But it's very faithful to the comic. And even the, the final scenes in the Statue of Liberty where you're in the lab and you've got all those clones being grown. I don't quite understand why the clones are mostly grown, but we can still see their intestines, but they look really cool. I agree. Yeah. yeah. That said, the movie had a lot of production problems. And in fact, it actually had to get recut and submitted to the MPAA five times in order to get just Whoa. an R rating down from an NC-17. Dang. And by the way, we need to talk about the fact that this movie is rated R, and if you watch it, it does not feel like an R-rated movie. It feels like maybe no. a PG-13 movie at this point. Maybe. maybe. I mean, and that would just be for the violence. I mean, yeah, but compared to what gets rated PG-13 these days? Uh, yes, agreed. I think, if I remember right, one of the Aliens versus Predator movies, maybe both of them are rated PG-13, and they're way more violent and gory. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I could be completely wrong. Who rates but... these movies? I mean, not a real question. We don't need to get into that, but it's oh. wild to me. We'll go on a, a very tiny side tangent, but highly recommend you watch the movie This Film Is Not Yet Rated, which talks about the MPAA and their ratings board and how weird and secretive it is and just A, how dumb and arbitrary their system is. I might watch that tonight. It's great. I highly recommend it. So there was an interview with Stephen D'Souza, who was the guy who actually wrote the script for Judge Dredd. He was talking to Den of Geek. He shed some light on how the movie's problematic production wound up leading to this mess that we wound up receiving. If you would be so kind. Why, sure. Judge Dredd was actually supposed to be a PG-13 movie. The production company at the time, Synergy, they were having some financial troubles, 
so they didn't have any UK executives on location in England. And in their absence, the director, Danny Cannon, wanting to make it true to the comic book, was making everything more and more and more violent. So when the movie was delivered to be cut, it was rated X. And it was rated X four times. (laughs) (laughs) They say you can't appeal after four. Four is all you get. Somehow the producer, Ed Pressman, managed one more time to get it rated R. Which actually wasn't a victory, because this was supposed to be PG-13. They had made a deal with Burger King. Mm -hmm. I think. And a toy company. And you can't advertise toys for an R-rated movie. And no hamburger place wants toys for an R-rated movie. So the hamburger people and the toy people turned around and sued Disney the distributor. Whoop. (laughs) Oops. Well, Well, Disney then said, we'll take this out of the director's hide because he signed a piece of paper saying he would deliver a PG-13. But Synergy, who was releasing it through Disney, at that point had never done anything but an R-rated movie. Nobody in the entire company had ever had the experience of putting that piece of paper in front of a director. So they had to pay him. (laughs) They couldn't withhold his salary for violating a legal promise they never asked him to make. (laughs) I kind of love that. Blunders. Yeah. That interview also notes that the scene where the reporter gets killed by Rico and he's framing Dread, it was way more violent and, and gory and it looked like something out of RoboCop. And then additionally, there was the bit where Rico tells his robot to tear off the arms and legs of the Council of Five judge that he's been working with. And he says, rip off his arms and legs and then save his head for last. And so it was originally supposed to be a scene where basically it cuts away to Rico walking away or something like that or shadows or something. And then you just hear the screams and that's it. But apparently they made a full animatronic robot that had the arms and legs actually getting ripped off and like spewing blood. No. (laughs) Yeah. Guys. Yeah. So this was clearly one of those things where desires were not clearly communicated. So Stallone gave an interview to Uncut Magazine in 2008, and he talked about a bunch of the things that that went wrong with that movie, including this weird story about Danny Cannon, where he said, I knew we were in for a long shoot when, for no explainable reason, Danny Cannon, who's rather diminutive, jumped down from his director's chair and yelled to everyone within earshot, Fear me! Everyone should fear me! Then jumped back up to his chair as if nothing happened. The British crew was taking bets on his life expectancy. Yikes. Yeah, the guy's going to give himself a coronary. I mean, it, moly. it reminds me a little bit of the stories that were coming out of the Suicide Squad set. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. I'm hearing more and more stories of just things that actors are being put through on set. And it's just, I don't care who you are. You shouldn't have to deal with this bullshit while you're working. I don't envy them. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, there has to be ways that doesn't hurt people to entertain us. Yeah. Back onto the topic of Judge Dredd itself. It was this movie that cost $95 million, and that's in 1995. So adjusting for inflation, that's roughly $190 million in 2021 dollars. Whew. For reference, there's a bunch of MCU flicks that, when adjusting for that inflation, cost less than Judge Dredd did. 
the R rating in turn and kind of the lackluster end product resulted in $113 million at the box office worldwide. And that was a lot less than Stallone and really everyone else was hoping for. They were legit hoping that this was going to be just a blowout success story and they could make a, a franchise out of it. So we've already talked about how they were trying to make this into something that they can market to kids. And we still got some products that show that was the plan. There were a couple of associated products like a junior novelization and a comic adaptation of the movie from DC Comics itself. And then a video game that's actually, it's not bad. It's like a a side scroller and the movie story ends about, I think, halfway through. And then you go on to a bunch of different worlds and end up fighting those dark judges that I was talking about earlier, which is Mm kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fine. But anyway, none of these tie-in products really seem to land. How did you feel about this film overall? I'm curious. Is it bad to say it came across as a little cheesy? No, not at all. Like a nice holy Swiss cheese. Yeah. There were some mega plot holes that were very apparent that kind of took me out of the experience. I'm saying that a lot this episode, but (laughs) way to go, guys. (laughs) And it it made me really overthink aspects of the storyline. Yeah. Like the whole, how did you not know where you were clones? Did you not accidentally ever pick up the other person's gun and were like, why can I use this? If you have the DNA testing, it just, it didn't make a lot of sense. And how can you sequence two different guns if you only have one sequence of DNA? I don't get that either. Yeah. And I mean, part of that is just because it was 1995. DNA <laughs> it was still like a really hot topic for plots. It was new science. It was really exciting. I mean, that's fair. We were in the throes of the O.J. Simpson trial, and so DNA evidence was a really big thing there. Yeah. But yeah. Um, button item, you're right, I think. Buzzword. And so that kind of goes into the whole idea of clones as well, but that's an established plot line of Dread itself. But I mean, like, yeah. I remember there's a bit where they focus on the flying lawmaster motorcycle and they say, well, if you can ever get it to work, it'll be yours. And they bust out, and then there's several other flying lawmasters chasing after them. Well, when they're talking about those motorcycles, I think they're trying to liken them to really bad quality government issue. Like, these things are a piece of shit, but you can probably get them into the air and have the worst model sitting there for the newbies to fuck around with. But I don't know. That's That was my takeaway from it, just because I, I also remember not that the cars are bad necessarily, the police cars, but it's like they are stripped out of nothing. They're just oh, like yeah. a car. Yeah. <laughs> None of the fancy shit. <laughs> yeah, those those good old Crown Vicks. Oh, yeah. And I think that part of it for me was the serious scenes, like the courtroom scene, uh, especially Mix and Rob Schneider in any of those situations. And it was just a little much. Yeah, absolutely. Stallone played it really straight and really intense, and it doesn't quite work. It feels almost like a high school drama production where you're watching those kids on stage. They're acting too hard. They, they've turned their acting <laughs> dials up to 11. And you're like, okay, buddy, we need it at like a seven. <laughs> I'm just imagining a man, like a, a child on stage, shaking. His arm is shaking. He's got a skull in his head and he's just yeah. screaming out lines from Hamlet. You're like, oh, buddy, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> Yurik can't hear you, Hamlet. He's already dead. I think it's okay. 
Womp womp. Yeah, my take on it, aside from the fact that it's it's a little bit too faithful and too earnest, is that this reminds me of that situation where you take a bunch of different ingredients that you think are going to taste amazing and you slap them together into a sandwich and then you realize the combination doesn't work, but you end up eating it anyway. Been there. Like we talked about the sets, the makeup, the costumes, even the special effects, those are all great. But the script and then Stallone's performance really kind of do it a disservice. And even Sly has acknowledged that the movie missed the mark. So that earlier interview that I mentioned with Uncut Magazine, he had a really great point where he talked about how it didn't work. I loved that property when I read it because it took a genre that I love, what you could term the action morality film, and made it a bit more sophisticated. It had political overtones. It showed how if we don't curb the way we run our judicial system, the police may end up running our lives. It dealt with archaic governments. It dealt with cloning and all kinds of things that could happen in the future. It was also bigger than any film I've done in its physical stature and the way it was designed. All the people were dwarfed by the system and the architecture. It shows how insignificant human beings could be in the future. There's a lot of action in the movie and some great acting, too. It just wasn't balls to the wall. But I do look back on Judge Dredd as a real missed opportunity. It seemed that lots of fans had a problem with Dredd removing his helmet, because he never does in the comic books. But for me, it is more about wasting such great potential there was in that idea. Just think of all the opportunities there were to do interesting stuff with the Cursed Earth scenes. It didn't live up to what it could have been. It probably should have been much more comic, really humorous and fun. What I learned out of that experience was that we shouldn't have tried to make it Hamlet. It's more Hamlet and eggs. That's so funny that I brought up Hamlet. I didn't read ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I was laughing about that, actually. Yeah, and I mean... (laughs) He's not wrong. I think he played it too straight and too serious. And they also tried to make it an action buddy comedy movie, which it just it doesn't quite work. Like the the tone with Dread is you have to walk a really fine line and they didn't stick to it this time. Yeah, I feel like it was trying to be extremely faithful to the source material, which always walked this very fine line tonally. And then it blew past it to create something that's just it's way too earnest and over the top. It kind of reminded me of Jupiter Ascending, if you remember that movie. I do. Yeah, it's this movie that has crazy high production values, a pretty great cast, actually, and a really big story. And then it all combines into something that's honestly kind of underwhelming. And forgettable. Because I yeah. kind of forget what that whole plot line of that movie is. And I think I've seen it twice because I was like, I don't think I've seen this before. And I sat through the whole thing again. It's yeah. one of those movies. I just remember a lot of shirtless Channing Tatum and... You know. Yeah, he wasn't it. See, I don't even know. Yeah. Do you have any more thoughts before we move on to the 2012 remake, kind of? It's not really a remake, it's just the 2012 movie. No, let's rob Schneider our way out of this. I'm not sure I like that verb. <laughs> I was using it as do something really stupid to get out of a situation, and I think I did it just by saying that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How would you describe this movie? Give it, give another quick summary, if you will. Mega City One. The future. There are still flying cars, but less of them. In a packed city rife with violence, Judge Joseph Dredd is assessing a new potential recruit to the force. 
This recruit isn't like the others, however. She is psychic. A mutant. In answering their first call, they inadvertently get themselves involved in a large-scale drug operation and have to kill or be killed in order to survive. This film has no sympathy for innocent bystanders, who are killed by the dozens each scene, and the judges are swift to kill any who might oppose them. They finally escape using their wits and the psychic's ability, all while taking down a drug ring. Yeah. Ta-da. All in a day's work. Dread came out right around the same time, I think a little bit after, as this movie out of, I think, Thailand called The Raid, which it's about a police force that's basically working their way up through a skyscraper. And and it's another really intense action movie. It's got really kick-ass action scenes. It's really good. And the sad thing is it's just that and Dread have a similar plot based on that, but it's also, you know, very different. So there were a lot of unfair comparisons to that at the time. I see. How do you feel this movie compares with the Stallone one? It was definitely more serious. Mm-hmm. And more bloody, mm-hmm. for sure. It really leaned into the death and carnage aspect, becoming more and more creative and destructive as the film progressed. Like, was it strictly necessary to aim towards and blow up an entire floor of a densely inhabited building? I don't know. It was kind of hard to watch sometimes. It was pretty graphic. I, mm-hmm. I did like that it took on a more serious tone, though. And I think the reason that it's so hard to watch for me is more for the social implications. Like when the film made it clear that vagrancy could carry a similar sentence to other more serious crimes. Right. Which was really wild. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I feel like it did a lot more subtle world building with moments like that or when they're describing the mega block that they're investigating and it's noted that there's only a 3% employment rate. Mm-hmm. It's weird because it's such a violent movie. And don't get me wrong, I think the action scenes are just incredible. They look great. But at the same time, it's a more subtle movie in a lot of ways than the Stallone one was. Yeah, definitely it's scarier. Like yeah. the idea of it is more, it seems more real and in your face. And for me, it definitely put a spotlight on how scary policing can be to targeted groups. Yeah. And this might be an extreme example, but how extreme is it really? Yeah. And it's interesting because you and I talked about this before. This is a movie that is very, it's very binary with its morals. Like there's only the good guys and the bad guys. This isn't, this isn't one of those movies where you sit there and you watch it and are really given a lot of moral things to consider. There's not a lot of philosophy here, but it doesn't sit there and say that dread and the judges themselves are in the right it's basically showing that there is a force who is basically the gang that is running the apartment block that they are in which is headed up by a fucking terrifying lena hetty it and a they really uglied her up which i was actually really impressed i didn't recognize her because this came out right after game of thrones had just had its first season i think maybe its second season it hit but i mean what a stark contrast between her in the mama role and then Cersei Lannister. Stark. I like what you did there. Hey, that was totally intentional. <laughs> that, was to- that was totally intentional. I totally did that on purpose. <laughs> like I said, there is no wiggle room. They sit there and they basically say, no, this woman is a monster and she does need to be taken down. 
you know, to the movie's credit, the judges don't really mow down innocent bystanders. It's all the thing of, no, they're going up against bad guys who have guns and are trying to kill them. But at the same time, it does also acknowledge how they aren't completely in the right either. Like there's a scene where they take shelter in an apartment and Olivia Thirlby's character reads the mind of this woman who they're basically holding up to give them shelter for a few minutes. And she realizes that, oh, this woman's baby daddy is one of the gang members that they just killed a few minutes ago. She herself yeah. had killed that guy. Yeah, and I appreciated that. There are those moments where it takes a more mature look at maybe everything that's going on isn't great. And then there's that moment at the end where Anderson sits there and talks about how when she lets the hacker character go because she realizes that he is just as much of a victim as a lot of the other people in the block are, even though he's been aiding Mama. Yeah, and then I like how Dredd tries to call her on it. She's like, I've made the judgment. He's a victim. Yeah. And I thought that was great. Also, that actor is the guy who played General Hux in the Star Wars movies that we got recently. I thought I recognized him and I could not place him and I was too lazy to go on IMDb. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I thought it was a much more, it's weird to call that movie subtle, but I felt like there were a lot of nice little subtle moments in it. And I really liked how a Mama was a genuinely frightening villain, especially because You never see her flying off the handle or being over the top or anything like that. She delivers everything with this really kind of scary calm, which we see in the first few minutes when she tells her officer to skin some guys who were selling drugs on her territory without her permission. Yeah. And then the order is given after they've been skinned to be given hits of slow-mo, which is the the drug throughout the movie that slows down perceptions of time. So they are thrown off the top story of this apartment block. And basically, they have this long, awful, painful plummet into the courtyard below. God, that, that it's really, going to be so terrifying. Yeah, and that really set the tone for who we were dealing with, which I thought was incredibly effective. I thought they did such a nice job on the cinematography on that, by the way. When they did those scenes with the slow-mo and they had it kind of shimmery and they put you in the mindset of the person having used the slow-mo. And I thought that was such a good technique. So, yeah. And the whole thing was that they released this movie in 3D. Oh. So you can tell that those scenes were filmed specifically for 3D cinematography. That makes so much sense. I actually saw this movie opening night in the theaters. and. A, I remember tweeting about it and saying that movie was way too good for the theater to be that empty on a Friday night. But I remember that was the first and really that's the only time I've ever enjoyed a movie in 3D because I felt the 3D actually added something as opposed to just being a cheap gimmick to wring an extra couple of bucks out of my wallet. That's usually how I feel about it too. Yeah. But I liked how Olivia Thurlby's character, Judge Anderson, was actually way less of a damsel in distress than Diane Lane's Judge Hersey. And then on top of that, a lot of the superhero movies rely on that whole female heroes have to fight female villains trope that it always feels like they don't get to participate in the end boss battle. And I thought it was really cool how Anderson wound up using her powers to A, escape her captors, B, actually rescue Dread, and then C, really be a giant aid to him throughout the movie. She felt like a viable, real character as opposed to just kind of window trim. Yeah, agreed. I was nodding vigorously when you were talking <laughs> about that because I am in absolute agreement. I was a little worried when she first got captured because I was like, oh, here we go. Yeah. 
so fucking typical. But then when she was actually using her powers and she was getting out of the situation herself, it was like, okay, fine. You got this. You're fine. Yeah. On top of that, the intro to the movie we get is so tight and efficient. And aside from the intro where we get a chase scene where we see slow-mo in effect, we see how brutal Dredd is himself. We also get the intro to Anderson where she's demonstrating her powers by basically reading the mind of Dredd from behind a a two-way mirror. And there's that great line about like, oh, well, you know, there's another judge with you. He's male. I sense control and anger and then something, something more, something. And then the the judge cuts her off. She's like, that's enough. That's fine. And I'm like, cool. So we've got a really good summary of who Dredd himself is. Okay, we get it now. This is all we need. Yeah, it was a really good narrative tool. I did like that. Yeah. And then in the comics, Anderson actually is a pretty big ally of Dredd himself. And she's also never a romantic interest, but she winds up being key to defeat those monster movie versions of the judges. And actually, it's been a little while since I read this, but if I remember right, when she first confronts Judge Death, who is the leader of the Dark Judges, she winds up trapping him inside her own mind because he's the psychic entity. And so... I was really happy that they took a strong character and kept her really strong. It's good to hear that she also had a really strong role within the comics. And then the other thing is that I kind of liked how they had Dredd himself be a little bit more subtle. Like, hey, we never have him take off his helmet, which I thought was great. And I thought Carl Urban, I mean, how did you feel about Carl Urban as Dredd compared to Stallone? I thought he was great. And I think I, it would have made less sense if he had taken off his helmet just as far as the character goes and honestly i think in this situation there wasn't much room for him as a character to have his helmet off because they were pretty in a battle mode yeah the whole movie truly except for the introductory first few minutes yeah and i like the bit where so anderson loses her helmet pretty early on and dread actually calls her out on it And he says, you're not wearing your helmet. And she goes, oh, well, the helmet interferes with my psychic abilities. And he just goes, so will a bullet. And then that's it. That's. Yep. (laughs) I thought that was great. Yep. He'll give her the advice he will give, but he's not going to tell her to do it, which I thought was good. Yeah. I'm curious. We're going to get to this in a minute about like how it is through the 2021 lens. But did you enjoy the movie? I think for me, because I'm such an empath, it was a little bit too much Mm -hmm. innocent blood. Yeah. Death. Okay. Yeah. Even just like, they didn't need to kill the vagrant. It, that was a very like, oh, the gates closed and the vagrant just happened to be sitting there and he got squashed. And they both kind of looked at it like, well, guess we don't have to deal with that. And yeah. I was like, well, fucking hell, guys, come on. Yeah. And I mean, at the same time, from my perspective, and I understand where you were coming from with this, but from my perspective, it was kind of the embodiment of that weird, absurdist gallows humor that is often present in the comics so yeah i can see that yeah yeah but yeah so like i said this is one of my favorite movies i've got an original poster for it that a friend got for me at comic-con i have the special edition blu-ray i own the illustrated script which has tons of concept art and storyboards by jock who is this really big name in british comics and the storyboards they actually have in the book he did as comic pages and they very closely mirrored that shot for shot it's really cool but it's really uncomfortable even for me to watch after the last couple of years where the u.s has started to seriously grapple with the reality of police brutality in our system i don't know i've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple of days because i realized i used to watch dread pretty regularly i'd throw it on in the background or if i was at the gym and i wanted to watch something while i was on 
one of the machines. I would throw it on my iPad. And I didn't realize how I hadn't watched it for at least two years until I put it back on ahead of this episode. Your timing makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. I'm at the point where I kind of associate this with RoboCop, which I also feel is a really excellent movie in a lot of ways. But so much of the stuff that's in it is just heinously uncomfortable now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. See, I think for me it was hard just because watching the injustice of the last few years especially, I mean, the fact that it's so media-centered that we're able to see it. Yeah. That's bringing it to the spotlight. It's always been happening. Yeah. We're just able to see it now. We can record it. Exactly. And we're also at the point where watching these movies, reading these comics, I'm looking back on this and I'm like, guys, this was all supposed to be satire. What happened? How are we actually living in these nightmare dystopian scenarios? You know, with Dread, we've got the society that's barely clinging to the last vestiges of civilization and the legal system is overwhelmed and then it starts and ends with snap judgments by street cops and there's no accountability for them. And 10 years ago, watching this, this seemed completely impossible. Coming from our privileged positions, it didn't seem remotely feasible. And yet here we are in 2021 and we realized not only was it feasible, it was already happening. We just, we weren't aware of it because we got lucky. Yeah, absolutely. Super lucky that we didn't have to grow up having to deal with this on a personal level. But it was really hard to watch for that reason, because instead of seeing it as satire, I was seeing the reality of the situation. Yeah. Maybe a more extreme version of that out in the open, but not really. I mean, we have cops who have qualified immunity and get away with stuff all the time. You know, you can hashtag not all cops, but we are in a broken system. Exactly. And there are no good cops in a broken system. Yep. I don't know exactly how to wrap up this discussion about dread because it's very hard to watch it these days and compartmentalize it away from what's going on in our system. But I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version of this movie and how it did, and then we'll uh, move on from there, I guess. So Dread was a critical success. It did really well with people who watched it, by and large. When this came out in 2012, there wasn't really a lot like it for American audiences, but it was also marketed really poorly, and so people didn't really know it existed. A lot of people, when I talked to them about how good it was, they said, oh yeah, that looks really cool. I want to see that when it comes out. And I'm like, it came out like two weeks ago, and it's already out of the theaters. Yeah, it maybe broke even at the box office worldwide. The budget's a little bit fluid with how much it costs to make, but it was a box office failure. It did really well on home media, though. So it wound up being one of the top selling DVDs for a while and streaming. It was really popular and a fan movement started up to get a sequel, which the producer Adi Shanker has talked about. It's probably not going to happen unless they can get a couple of different scenarios. One of them that I actually liked was Adi Shanker saying, well, you know, if you can get an actor to come in who can revitalize the franchise, like, I don't know, maybe if we can get The Rock. <laughs> and I was like, well, he does he does revitalize franchises. We're looking at you, Fast and Furious. Yeah, no, true. Yeah. Is your friend of the pod, Dwayne Johnson? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> I just think everyone's a future friend of the pod. I, You're all future friends of the pod. I mean... The Rock is also apparently just everybody's friend when he meets them. He's apparently just one of the most genuinely likable people. So Apparently he really likes D&D. I want to have a conversation about D&D with him. I didn't know that. I knew Vin Diesel was really into it. 
but I didn't know the rock yeah. was. That's cool. You know, it's funny. I actually interviewed Vin Diesel and I broke the news that he's a D&D fan. <gasps> Did you? Yeah. When I was working at Ars Technica, I wound up interviewing him about he was doing a video game based on Riddick. And I was chatting. It was like a group call. But at one point, the question I had was basically, why do you keep coming back to this character and, and playing him? Because this is like your, I think it was like at that point, the fifth time he was playing the character. And he gave me this very long, thoughtful answer talking about the character of Riddick and why he likes him. And then he goes on, he's like, you know, we're able to have these crazy cool worlds now in movies, but we didn't get that. I was a kid in the Bronx in the 70s. We didn't have the worlds that you get in video games now. And he's like, I grew up playing Pong. And so we all played D&D. I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. So after Dread didn't make back its money at the box office, 2080 who is now owned by a video game publisher called Rebellion, published a one-issue sequel. I remember buying it at the time. It was fine. It, it's fine. It's just, it's nothing special. It's nothing really memorable about Dread. It felt like a very generic action comic. Because of the fan movement, there was supposedly going to be a Mega City 1 TV show, I think, at Amazon Prime for Prime Video. And the last I heard was that it was still in development in 2018. Carl Urban had said that he was going to be in it. After the last couple of years, I'd be shocked if it was going to happen. They would have to have some sort of an, a wild-ass spin for it to be yeah. remotely acceptable right now. Yeah, and then I couldn't find the article that was talking about this, but I remember at one point reading something about how they were hoping that this movie was going to be a success and then they were going to bring in the Dark Judges. And Adi Shanker mm -hmm. was producing a bunch of kind of cool web series for a while. And there was actually a Judge Death web series. I think it was called Diary of a Super Fiend, which was really cool. The people behind it clearly had some ideas of where they wanted to take it if it wound up working, but it didn't. And at this point, I almost feel like we're kind of in another Highlander scenario where maybe, uh, maybe the fact that this movie failed and we got something that, for the right audiences, was really good. Maybe that's just where we need to leave it. Yeah. Maybe there can only be one. <laughs> we are now at the end of our episode, which means it's time for brain wrinkles. So we want to talk about that one thing that's comics or comics related that we just can't get out of our heads at the moment. Why don't you uh, kick us off? I've been, I've been talking for a bit. No, oh, well, mine's Happy Pride Month. Mine's Pride-related. Mm. <laughs> so, while we've been seeing a, a lot of corporate kowtowing to the LGBTQIA plus community, mostly by just slapping rainbows on everything they sell, probably marking them up too. I don't know. I'm not buying it. It's a rainbow tax. However, yeah, exactly. Rainbow tax. I already have a pink tax. I don't need to get taxed for this too. Come on. <laughs> However, not all corporations, hashtag not all corporations, have gotten on board with being kind to the Alphabet Mafia, <laughs> even though it's our celebratory month. <laughs> we're like, we're like so brides on, on the wedding day. It's our month. It's our special month. This is, this is my month. Could you not be a dick to me on this just this one month? No. <laughs> That's, we don't get that. No, it's not a thing. So Warner Brothers Games made Injustice 2 Mobile which is a Batman-centered game that's supposed to take place after the fall of Superman's regime. That being said, specifically for Pride Month, the challenge that they decided to land on 
was legitimately teaming up as a gaming community to take down or beat up Poison Ivy as many times as they could. So I'm sure you understand how inappropriate it is to team up to beat a canonically LGBT character on this, the month of pride. (laughs) It's, yeah. Oh, and by the way, you also team up with Harley Quinn, you know, one of her known girlfriends, to beat her up. (sighs) It's beyond tone deaf. And at this point, they have issued an apology and taken down their tweets bragging about how many times she had already been beat up. But yikes, it's real rough. Yeah, I remember when that story broke and a bunch of us that either were in the video game community, like those of us that had worked in the industry or, you know, were still working in the industry, a bunch of us were privately talking about that and how really bad it was. Yeah, it's, it is rough. Yeah. Well. Well, what about you? It's actually kind of related to this, but a little bit different too. Oh. Um, yeah. It's also something dealing with how DC slash Warner Brothers often doesn't seem to read the room. There was a recent bit of news this week about how in the Harley Quinn TV show's upcoming third season, there was going to be a scene where Batman is seen going down on Catwoman and DC wound up nixing this real fucking hard. Harley Quinn co-creator Justin Halpern was giving this interview to Variety and he said, it's incredibly gratifying and free to be using characters that are considered villains because you just have so much more leeway. A perfect example of this is in the third season of Harley when we had a moment where Batman was going down on Catwoman and DC was like, you can't do that. You absolutely cannot do that. They're like, heroes don't do that. So we said, are you saying heroes are just selfish lovers? Which, A, I love that response. I think that's great. Same. (laughs) And they were like, no, it's just that we sell consumer toys for heroes. It's hard to sell a toy if Batman is also going down on someone. I mean, I just, I can't, man. It's not like kids are watching this. No. It's not a kid's cartoon. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, there was a comic from 2011 where Batman and Catwoman literally have sex on the floor and they're still fully costumed. And it's this like, it's not like a subtle moment. It's a full page panel at the end of an issue. And I'm trying to understand how that's considered more heroic than going down on your fiance. Like, which I think they're fiancés. I don't know. At some point they were supposed to get married. I, I don't actually read a lot of Batman, so I'm a little bit behind. But you think Batman's picked up that many skills and he's a selfish lover? Come on. Come on. Like, I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. He does have a lot of money. He does. So he's going to get away with a lot more. And he does have those abs. Yeah. I don't know. I think it tracks, my dude. I hate it, but... Yeah. But I also don't like Bruce Wayne as a person. Yeah. Because he's just so, like, everything is about me. I fight crime because I lost my parents. Yeah, okay, so did Anastasia, but you don't see her trying to blow up Russia. Like, calm the fuck down. I'm talking about the children's film, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, she... Instead of going on a massive quest for vengeance, she just, you know, hung out with plucky animal characters and took down a zombie monk. Yeah. yeah. Do that. Do that. <laughs> Be better, Bruce. 
be historically inaccurate and do better. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On that note, we'll be back in two weeks where we will talk about something new and exciting, although we have no idea what. And until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us. Text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson. It was written by Mike Thompson, yours truly, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Meanwhile, our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by cut underscore thistles on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to 10centtakes.com or shoot an email to 10centtakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is 10centtakes. Jessica Moa is Jessica Witha, and Jessica's spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sal, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. 